0: It sounds crazy to think that, you know, I was sick for four weeks and thought of killing myself, but by the end, you really do. You have all of this time to think to yourself and to wrestle with your demons and all you do is suffer. And because you're depressed, your brain convinces you that you can't be fixed. It's like your own body turns on you and is your worst enemy. And I had this incredibly supportive partner who would come to me every day and say, you are going to make it. I know it doesn't feel like it, but you will. And I couldn't believe her. Like I just couldn't take. I thought that's. I'm glad for you that you believe that because maybe it makes this easier to watch. But I think I'm gonna die at the end of this. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's
1: time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. This episode, I interview. Professor Travis Reeder, who's Assistant Director of Education Initiatives, Director of the Masters of Bioethics Degree Program and Research Scholar of the Bergman Institute of Bioethics, is also a faculty affiliate of the Centre of Public Health Advocacy within the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Today we talk about the use of opiates and uh, the crisis in how it's being prescribed um, and most importantly, uh, how people are struggling with getting off opioids after a severe trauma. Professor Reeder speaks about his experience, his personal experience following a motor vehicle accident when he was on a motorbike and his foot was crushed. He calls a blown apart where he was very lucky to have his uh, uh, foot um, uh, still attached where there was lots of consideration about amputating. But most importantly, his journey through the opioid experience where he went through severe, severe withdrawal. Uh, There's a really compassionate message that uh, Professor Reedus talks about, and it really comes towards the end of this episode. So please listen through to the end. I think uh, Travis has some amazing uh, point of views to, to go out and explore, to do this better, as a as a society. Uh, Enjoy, you're gonna find this very fascinating and you know hopefully one day it'll be able to go out and also help you and maybe some loved ones uh, in using pain medication in a more effective way. Really happy today to have Travis Reader on the podcast, Better Thinking. He's got a lot of experience, lived experience and, and uh, looked into the topic of the opioid crisis and it's something that I'm fascinated by because we certainly hear a lot about you know, illicit drug use and, and the problems that, that come you know, in that sort of space but very often, it's kind of forgotten about the prescriptive world, and, and um, you know the, the many of us, the thousands, countless, you know, hundreds of thousands who are using you know opioids, whether it be through an injury or um, other chronic use uh, for for um, you know injury management or, or medical reasons. And so, really, I think there's no one better to to talk about this than than Travis. And um, thank you, and and welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Trust, do you mind maybe telling us a little bit about you know your, your your history, your background? I know what captured me first was was seeing you in the, in the TED Talk discussing this and your your, your personal story.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so prior to about 2015, I was doing very different things with my career. I'm a faculty member at Johns Hopkins University, and um, back then I was spending almost all my time on climate change ethics. I thought a lot about overpopulation, very, very different sorts of stuff. And then uh, what really changed my career and changed everything was uh, I was in a motorcycle accident. So May 23rd, 2015, I went out for a motorcycle ride and I only made it a few blocks from my house. Uh, A van came from a side street, blew a stop sign and T-boned me on the motorcycle. So it crushed my left foot between the bumper of the van and the motorcycle. I know that's pretty, pretty gruesome. So I was, I felt very smart. You know, I was wearing like full racing leather and full face helmet and body armor. Um, But it turns out uh, it doesn't matter how much body armor you're wearing. If you get crushed between two hard surfaces, um, there's not a whole lot you can do to protect yourself. So my left foot was pretty severely damaged. I was in what's called a limb salvage situation. So the doctors assumed they were going to take at least part of my foot, if not the whole foot. And um, that's what really set off everything for me. As in, me in to amputate hospital.
1: it, to take it off.
0: Yeah, as in wow. amputated. Yeah, wow. so I was, uh, I was taken in the nearest trauma center and that was the beginning of a very long road to recovery for me. So I had five, what are called limb salvage surgeries. So surgeries to try to salvage the limb. And then I would eventually have another surgery some six months later after the the initial swelling had gone down and they could kind of reshape the foot. But those first five surgeries took about a month and I was in three different hospitals while specialty teams worked on it and tried to pull it off. Yeah. So like the positive spin on this story is it's kind of a medical miracle. Like I still have my foot um, and it's really complex what they did. They carved out a big piece of my thigh and plugged this hole that I had blown in my foot with muscle and fat and they covered it up with skin and they microsurgically attached an artery to get blood to that tissue and a vein so that I could feel, th- or a, a nerve, so that I could feel things. I mean, they did something pretty amazing, um, but it started me down on this road of um, pretty heavy use of opioid painkillers. And so that's, that's what kind of uh, took me on a whole different trajectory.
1: Isn't it incredible that modern medicine can go out and do that, 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 that's just mind boggling, mind boggling. Truly. In some sense, kind of restructured your whole, whole, whole foot, you know, and, 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 and did some, you know, what, what sounds to me is like science fiction.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, the, the first three bones, the long bones that connect your ankle to your toes, you know. First one was completely shattered and blew a hole out through the inside of my foot. The second and third ones broke clean. I mean, it was a really gnarly injury. And yeah, not too long ago at all, you know, some years or decades prior, um, they would have just looked at that and said, well, we're going to amputate your foot. And as a matter of fact, if I had been most places in the world they would have just looked at that and said we're going to amputate your foot but i happen to be on the east coast of the united states uh near washington dc and baltimore city uh so i had you know world-class doctors kind of at my at my doorstep and they they pulled off something pretty impressive
1: that's absolutely incredible that's absolutely incredible to uh yeah to uh in in some sense have your have a functioning foot you 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 walk on it as per normal you you know i'm I'm assuming still some pain but you've got a foot
0: yeah exactly still some pain probably more surgeries in the future you know i I can't like run i can't do a lot of things that that people with two working feet can do but i i find stuff to do i I go rock climbing (laughs) which um (laughs) i just use the parts of the foot that function but yeah you know yeah we, we all kind of make it work with what we got
1: i was uh, just recently watching the dawn wall where the gentleman loses one of his um one of his uh, primary fingers and and uh just adapts you know the, the, this kind of sheer obsession to i'm not going to let this get in the way and and you know to then sort of do this incredible feat of, you know, achievement, you know, it's just remarkable. So, you know, it sounds like you got a little bit of that in you as well, in terms of you're not going to, you're not going (laughs) to just, just take this down lying. You, you're going to keep trying to, you know, live by your values and and do, do those things that, that, um, you know, you love.
0: Although I, I, I'm no Tommy Caldwell when it comes to (laughs) rock climbing. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: yeah so tell us about your story with obviously you know this huge horrible accident occurs, um you know quite significant misfortune and 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 then you know you go through these surgeries, I'm assuming that that's the where the relationship with you know the opioids begin.
0: yeah, so we have this really miraculous surgery that does this incredible thing with really complex medicine. And what's kind of ironic about the whole situation is while these specialty teams do this incredible thing, um, they had a really simple job by most people's lights, which is to keep my pain under control using medicine that... All doctors are pretty comfortable with these days, which is opioid painkillers. And this was a def- this was definitely an appropriate use of opioids. You know, a lot of problems when it comes to opioids and medicine are about inappropriate use. You know, in, in the United States, probably not in Australia, but in the United States, for something like two decades, our dentists would prescribe opioids after routine tooth extractions, and so you know, kids would go home with like full bottles of hydrocodone and oxycodone. Um, just for a little bit of tooth pain, which is a terrible use of opioids. And, and we've now realized that and we're trying to rectify it. But post surgical t- pain, post traumatic pain, like this was a totally reasonable use of opioids. I was in incredible pain. Um, you know, that at first, the the foot had been so mangled and then they continued to do surgery on it. And, you know, surgery involves cutting into you. And so that causes more pain. Eventually, I would have this transplant surgery, what they call a free flap, where they take the tissue from my thigh and move it to my foot. And so then I had a surgical side of my thigh. So this involved a lot of painkillers. And all of these surgeons are very comfortable using them, but nobody took responsibility for the long-term pain care for me. And so nobody was thinking, hey, Travis, you're going to be on these meds for weeks or months. You need to be thinking about the formation of dependence, right? If you try to get off them, you're going to face some withdrawal. There's a risk of addiction. Like nobody was having these conversations with me. And so instead I got handed off from doctor to doctor, nurse to nurse. They all just kept writing these prescriptions, telling me to stay ahead of the pain because it's, you, you don't want to kind of lose the fight to the pain and then been struggle to keep up with it, they would say. So every four hours, I just take more pills. And, and the thing that opioids do is they cause tolerance. And so, you know, every several days or week or two, um, the same dose wouldn't quite give me the same pain relief. And so they'd write for an increasing dose. Uh, and the end result of this is they finally finish all these surgeries. They send me home from the last hospital it's been about five weeks since the accident now. I'm on whopping doses of these opioid painkillers, a dose that, you know, if you have, have never been on opioids before and you took it right now, may kill you. You might actually overdose on it. Um, and, uh, and I just keep increasing my dose over the next month or so that I'm home from the hospital. And so it's not until two months after the accident that my initial trauma surgeon sees me at a follow-up appointment. He sees how many painkillers I'm on. And he says, oh my gosh, you're know you on way too many pills. We need to get you off of this. And that's what really starts my trouble because I'm now on these very high doses. And so what needed to happen is I needed to be tapered off of them because you can't just go cold turkey. You go cold turkey, you go into withdrawal. But what my doctors didn't know is that if you taper too fast, you still go into withdrawal. And if you don't have kind of care and you know mitigation of withdrawal symptoms alongside, you know, you can be really sick for a really long time. And so eventually my surgeon, my plastic surgeon, who'd been the last one writing prescriptions for me, he said, okay, taper off all of your meds over the course of four weeks. And I tried to do that, and it just cast me into to catastrophic withdrawal. I became so incredibly ill. And that's what led me to the TED Talk that you saw. Um, and and that's, that's what changed my whole perspective on my research and everything, because um, it seemed very problematic that my doctors didn't know how to get me off those medications.
1: It's quite interesting, because on face value... It kind of sounds reasonable, doesn't it? It kind of just says, "Okay, you know, you're you're taking some medication for pain. Um, You know, we'll just go out and you know wean you off over four weeks. What could be the problem?"
0: Yeah, exactly. What could be the problem? And you know, this was a young doctor. He specialized in plastic surgery. Um, very few of his patients probably ever get to doses like this uh, are never on for this long. So this was a really complex case that he worked with his mentor on and he was just unprepared. He would eventually admit this to me. Um, and he'd say, look, I'm sorry, I'm out of my depth. But by the time he admitted that, you know, I'd been in withdrawal for a week and a half, two weeks. And I just, I thought I was dying. Um, and, and you know, if, if any of your, your listeners or viewers, um, if you don't know what withdrawal is like, you know sometimes we we get our images of opioid withdrawal from TV or from the movies and you know somebody goes into heroin withdrawal and so they get all shaky and sweaty and sick and they throw up or they have diarrhea and then they sleep for a couple days and then thank god they're all better, right? Like that's how it's depicted in the movies. Um but it can be really catastrophic. You get all of these symptoms that are like the worst case of the flu you can imagine. Time, some order of magnitude. Um, And then you get the psychological symptoms because withdrawal is the opposite of a brain, withdrawal is the opposite of a drug's effects. And so, one of the effects of opioids is euphoria. That's why people like opioids, right? And so, withdrawal is dysphoric, it causes anxiety and depression. And eventually, for people like me, I mean, it drove me to start thinking about suicide because I thought, I was so broken that I would never be whole again.
1: That was a part of, of your talk that really kind of uh, caught me by, I don't know if I say surprise, but it certainly touched deeper where you got to a point of despair. Now a, a place of complete hopelessness where the solution was very real and, and compelling that, you know, I think it was in your in your fourth week of of withdrawal and maybe we can talk a little bit about that a little bit more in a moment but in your fourth week of withdrawal you were you were broken you 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 were at your wits end you know you were not sleeping um you know your everything about you was dysregulated um you know whether you know, to your temperature, or, or 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 you know your thoughts. on the, – the the way I was kind of you know hearing it and 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 trying to appreciate it was, uh, you know, this was something that was 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 all encompassing, and you just couldn't see your way out despite reaching out to numerous professionals to 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 kind of say, please, you know, help me. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you, you got the, you got the account pretty well. Um, so every week of withdrawal got worse and that's because the severity of withdrawal symptoms tend to track the percentage of the dose that you reduce. And so that first week, you know, they, the doc said divide it in four. And so that first week I reduced a quarter of the daily dose, but then I had dropped it. So I was down to a lesser dose. And so then the next week I was actually dropping a third, right? Um, And then the third week I was dropping it by half. And then the last week you drop everything, right? You go from something to nothing. And so it's actually, uh, you know, I've since learned, I've done all this research.
1: um, It's not actually a 25, 25, 25, 25 drop. It goes from 25 to 33 a fifty percent drop because you you get to that tolerance of uh, well you get to that level of whatever you're at and the percentage increases so at the very very end exactly. you've got a fifty percent reduction it's halving someone's dose it's it, it it it's incredible
0: yeah that's exactly right and then at the very very end it's it's everything right? yeah, it's hundred percent yeah. It, yeah 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 my apologies and no yeah so. Um, so every week when the symptoms would get worse, we'd start calling doctors, we'd call nurses, we'd call everyone we'd get a hold of and, and none of them would help. And most of the time they wouldn't know what to do. Uh, a lot of times they didn't want to talk to me because addiction is very stigmatized. And if you're withdrawing, you look like someone suffering from addiction, right? Which, which wasn't what I felt with, felt like, and we can come back to that. You know, I just felt very sick. But when they see somebody withdrawing and, and you know, saying I was on all of these opioids and I can't get off them because it hurts, they're thinking, oh, uh, you're an addict. And so that's not something I want to deal with. So we were facing a lot of stigma as we tried to find people to help us. But I didn't want to stop because I was already so sick and I didn't know how long that would last. And so every time the next dose reduction came up, my partner, Saudi and I would talk and and, I, and she'd say, do you wanna stop doing this? And I'd say, well, look, maybe if I stop, I'm still gonna be sick just as long, um, and then I won't get off, right? And, and here's the thing, I became convinced that if I ever went back on the meds to make the symptoms go away, that I would just never come off them again, right? I was 100%, 100% convinced of this. Like, I would never make myself go through this again because it felt like dying. So yeah, so as it gets more and more severe, by the second week, the depression had, had come in. I started having these fits of crying, which was very disconcerting because that's not something I do a lot in my normal life. Um, and then yeah, by that fourth week, I've gone completely off the medicine now and my entire body felt racked. I hadn't slept more than a, you know, a few minutes to a half hour at a time for weeks. And then that last week, I just stopped sleeping at all because remember, withdrawal is the opposite of the drug's effects and and opioids are sedatives, they sedate your system. And so when you're withdrawing, you've got this kind of jitteriness and these shakes and this kind of hyperactivity. And so every time I tried to lay down to rest, I would kick and my arms would twitch. Um, And so the sleeplessness really compounds everything because you have this crushing depression, you feel incredibly sick and you never sleep. So you have it 24 hours a day and it really does feel like it lasts forever, right? The, the days go on forever, the minutes, you just watch the clock and from you know, two in the morning to three in the morning, takes five days, right? Um, so by the end, it's, yeah, it sounds crazy to think that you know, I was sick for four weeks and thought of killing myself. But by the end, you really do. You have all of this time to think to yourself and to wrestle with your demons And all you do is suffer. And because you're depressed, your brain convinces you that you can't be fixed. It's like your own body turns on you and is your worst enemy. And I had this incredibly supportive partner who would come to me every day and say, you are going to make it. I know it doesn't feel like it, but you will. And I couldn't believe her. Like I just couldn't, I thought that's, I'm glad for you that you believe that because maybe it makes this easier to watch but I think I'm going to die at the end of this.
1: And I don't imagine you can believe it because anyone that's had children knows what it's like to have a little bit of sleep deprivation. And and children are probably 3% of what you're describing where, you know, you might get interrupted sleep or get um, shortened sleep where you get two hours a night and, you know, but the following night you might get four hours or it might be broken or you might sleep during the day. Um, but. You know, when you're not sleeping, you very, very easily and quickly fall into depression and hence why we've got, you know, high high rates of, you know, postnatal depression. Um, I mean, I don't really like that, that, that term because sleep deprivation will, will do the exact same thing and um, it's a little yeah. bit simplistic to, to, to just label people in that way. But um, you've got no cognitive power to think your way through, yeah. you know, anyone that hasn't slept for one night – you Know so, hasn't slept for 24 hours, starts feeling the effects where you know you just start going a little bit crazy, right? You know, you can't think straight, your memory's shot, you're irritable, you know, you can't listen anymore, you're, you're just not encoding. And how the hell can you think your way through this, let alone yeah. weeks?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I mean, you get like borderline hallucinogenic, right? Like, y- your brain really, really stops functioning, it's um. I, you know I, I tell people when I try to con- when I try to convey how awful this is, and and, and the reason for that, by the way, is because I want people to understand the difficulty that, that people who are using drugs for any reason, whether it's prescription or illicit, I want I want compassion built up to understand what it's like to withdraw from these from these drugs. Um, and when I try to convey it, I say, you know, I had my foot blown apart by a van on my motorcycle. And every minute of withdrawal was the worst minute of my life, right? It made the the pain of surgery and the pain of trauma look like Christmas vacation, you know?
1: Yeah, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. It's uh, uh it 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 shows how the psychological, you know, pain, uh, torture uh, yeah. is is much much worse than than. The physical that uh, you know is, is localised at least, um, rather than your whole experience. Did you have? Did you have um, visual disturbances? Any 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 sort of? Uh, I know that, for example, when I've driven long, long, long distances in Australia, you tend to do so because we've got you know thousands of kilometres sometimes between one one um, city to to another. If I've done like a really long drive, you know, 10 plus hours, uh, it, it's not unusual if I'm tired um, and I wouldn't suggest, and I haven't done this very often, but uh, I might seek, for example, kangaroos jumping across the uh, road, which clearly aren't there. It's just that, you know, your mind starts playing tricks after a, a period of time and, you know, the, these are things kind of like, oh, you see something, you know, on the side that you need to be cautious of. Um, did you start having... Some visual, visual, um, you know, I don't know if we'll use them disturbances, but you know, visual things that others could not see.
0: Um, you know, I don't remember that being a real big part of the actual withdrawal process. Um, I remember having kind of mild hallucinations when I was on the opioids, uh, because something similar is happening to your brain when when you're on the drugs, you're on this kind of like somewhat conscious, uh, you know, plane. And so you're, you're heavily, heavily sedated. And even when you're awake, you know, you're not encoding very well. And so I, I tell, I tell one of these stories in my book that I basically, it's actually kind of funny. Um, I would see the world as if it were the actual world, but kind of in a grayscale. scale, so I, I would think I was still awake, but my eyes were kind of slowly shut and I would see everything in a grayscale. And so I would still be in the hospital and I would see my hospital room and I would hear conversations, but they wouldn't track reality at all. And so I started describing this to Sadia and we thought it was just kind of funny at the time. And then one day I, you know, I, I woke up or I came to, or whatever the right word is, and I'm groggy and I say to Sadia, were you just doing yoga with the nurse? And she looked at me <laughs> and just kind of said, what? And then I kind of woke up a little bit more and my brain cleared a little bit more. And I was like, huh? Yeah. You probably weren't doing yoga in my hospital room with one of the nurses. huh?" But I had totally seen this, you know, I'd seen in the kind of grayscale the two of them on the side of my hospital room doing yoga. Um, so that was like, it was a fairly humorous version, but it's, it's actually kind of distressing. Like, once that happened for very long, it kind of weighs on you a little bit that your brain is misfiring in some pretty strange ways.
1: I imagine that can also be incredibly unsettling, you know, as, as a human being to say, I don't know if I can trust my own judgment, my perception, my what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing. You know, my reality is, is warped.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I should know that this is only when I was on the really high doses. Sure. So it would tend to be after major surgeries. Um. So when I when I go home, you know, I'm on more modest doses of just oh, oral oxycodone or something. Um. That wouldn't be. But in the hospital, I'm on those same oral doses, and I'm getting intravenous, you know, fentanyl or hydromorphone. So I'm getting some really heavy drugs directly into my veins, uh, to try to kind of take the edge off the incredibly sharp pain of surgery, and that's when you're on these doses where you're, you're kind of actually flirting with the same mechanism that causes overdose, right, because your respiratory rate really lowers over the course of that, those kinds of doses, and so you're hooked up to an oxygen monitor to make sure that you're taking enough breaths to oxygenate your blood, and if the oxygen rate falls too low, the nurses come in and wake you up and put you through breathing exercises. So that actually happened quite a bit. When, when I was on these really heavy doses, I have to wake up and go through these breathing exercises because the way that opioids kill people is they cause respiratory sedation to the degree that you just stop breathing.
1: Yeah wow wow and, and, and that's I suppose testament to to the level of work that was done on your foot and the the, the you know incredible pain that you would have been in that you know, that, that that's actually what you are going out and and uh, seeing as being the valuable side of, of you know sure. uh, pain pain management that in those times, irrespective of of what's you know mind you were in, it was a much better space than going out and sit, sitting in the pain of, you know, post-surgery, um, you know, where I imagine they'd cut through all sorts of flesh and drilled through bone and God knows what else.
0: You got it. Yep, you got it. Stuck pins in the feet and, yeah, sewed things together. It's, it. I mean, it's, it's really astonishing to imagine that some parts of the world you know, don't have access to opioid painkillers because if you're in genuinely severe pain, yeah, it's totally preferable. All the side effects, all the risks, sure, but um, the pain is is unbearable. Yeah.
1: And there's that natural progression of you know, I'm in more pain. Fine, Travis, we understand. Let's give you a little bit more. We don't want you in pain or suffering. You know, it, this is in your best interest, um, and. That That sounds very reasonable and plausible as a matter of fact, you know getting through that stage is not really something you're kind of questioning you're You're more questioning about uh, where is the support or the protocols or the education or the understanding from. The the medical space, um, the fraternity, the establishment, whatever whatever word we put it, um, yeah. or even even on our own personal knowledge as as as, as human beings, how do we know how to get off, you know, because as you mentioned before, it's very, very hard in that state to say, oh, you know, uh, my name's Travis and, you know, I I work in John Hopkins as a researcher and I've got all these, you know, um, uh, things in ethics that I'm looking at and so on and so forth. You're kind of like, hi, I'm Travis. Um, I'm on this dose and I'm having withdrawals and sweats and so on and, no one kind of knows who you are. There might be some stigma. What 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 do you think that accounts for this kind of lack of guidance and direction that you received? And not pointing question. not pointing the finger at any one, you know, professional, but not by any means. But uh, you know, what is it about about this space that meant that you fell through the cracks?
0: Yeah, so exactly right. Not pointing fingers, right? That's the least helpful thing. And I was at three world-class hospitals, right? And I had obviously fantastic physicians because they stitched together this mangled foot, right? So it's not the problem of any particular individuals. It's clearly a systems problem. It's that patients like me face certain gaps in care. And so we do, we fall through the cracks as you say. Okay, so so why is that? Um, Here's, here's what happened in America, and um, it's kind of a cautionary tale for, for places like Australia, right? Um, we had really, really problematic overprescribing of prescription opioids for about 15, 20 years, and the result of that was a significant and quick increase in addiction and prescription opioid overdose death rates. So that kicked off this kind of drug epidemic that we've seen, Now our response to that was to get totally freaked out and say, doctors are killing their patients, we need to fix this. And so we've really started to try to kind of slam the door on this tide of prescription opioids that were just flowing freely for years and years and years. When that happened, everybody was looking for a simple solution and so they were looking towards like, hey doctors, just stop prescribing so much. But no one thought, you know, you might need to know something in order to do that. Right. Um, the, the hope was the idea was, you know, these, these reactions are largely made by politicians and people who aren't doctors. And so the idea was like, it should just be simple. Doctors wrote a bunch of prescriptions that were irresponsible. So stop doing that. Well, what cases like mine show is even when opioids are called for because surgery trauma, These are obviously good uses of opioids. There's a whole other problem, which is that when you use opioids, you then have to manage them. You have to educate patients on the risks and benefits. You have to counsel them to help them figure out when the pain just needs to be suffered through and when it should be medicated, right? All of that takes a lot of expertise, a lot of compassion, a lot of time, and we don't have space for that in our healthcare system. It just doesn't work very well. So what we have instead is we have a kind of prescribe and forget culture. I'm happy to sign my name on this prescription for 60 pills. By the way, I'll never see you again, right? So go take these pills and I hope you're better. The result of that is we have patients like me who develop a dependence where dependence just means like my brain has adapted to this drug and if you take it away, I'm gonna go into withdrawal. That dependence can develop into a full-blown addiction if it's not caught, if it's not mitigated, if there's no one to help you kind of avoid the behavior of going back to the medicine, or it might not develop into an addiction, but you still have to face this really torturous withdrawal process. So, so here's the kind of you know, long-winded answer to your question. Um, we have to do more than just focus on that act, right? The act of just like prescribing pills, because our reaction to the over-prescribing was to be like, hey doctors, stop killing your patients with so many pills. But we didn't realize that they still have to use the pills sometimes. and so there have to be other things they can do. You know, when you use the pills, do it responsibly. manage your patients, help them to get off the medication. So that's like that's basically what I've been doing for the last four years. So I've been going around and talking to healthcare systems and and as I've you know made this my research career, I've started to learn you know, some of the data to help them see what they can do, like what does responsible prescribing look like? What what best practices could there be? And that gets down into the weeds, and it, and it can be institution-specific. You know, what works for one big hospital like Johns Hopkins might not work for every clinician in some rural area in the middle of the country. But everyone has to figure it out because you can't prescribe and forget that's not an okay way to do medicine.
1: And it's also, I I, I heard in in, you know, the, the, the talk that you did, it's also about, as you say, managing uh, uh, your patient through the process of coming off because watching the pain of, of, you know, you describing what, you know, week one looked like, what week two looked like, you know, what week three then looked like, you know, uh, part of me was, was you know, compelled to go out and, and in actual fact want you on it. You know, kind of say, "Look, I don't want you sitting in that pain. I, I, I see your desperation. I can help. I can, I can. Um, you know, let's take this discomfort. It's hard for me to watch you. I want to take my pain away, uh, to, to, to. You know, live easier. So what I'll do is I'll ease your pain. You know, it, it's kind of like I'm assuming there were probably those times where your partner was like." You know, you sure, you know, you sure you want to do this and you are very strong strong willed in in you know, just saying, No, I'm gonna do this. I imagine a lot of others haven't that they say, I can't do that, I can't live like that. I I will go back and um it, you know, quite potentially easily easily access it again because, you know, what what reasonable doctor's gonna say no to their patient who's desperate, you know, and and, and this is kinda of like a, a relationship that needs to be built between patient and and, and doctor um, to to work on it together in in you know a uniformed way or an informed way. My apologies, um, but it's very compelling to say stop this madness, Travis. Just you know go back and take some more, and you know we'll review it. But you know once again you can fall through the cracks that way too. And then you yeah, know, we're I mean, having a very different conversation today. You're still still using him at that point in a unhelpful way.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So my prescribing doctor, you know, his advice eventually was when we started calling him the third and then the fourth and the fifth time, you know, we'd have to when he wasn't taking it seriously enough, you know, saw so he would tell him, like, you need to understand he's really sick, he's really being tormented. And then once we got that across to him, then he did. He he became very uncomfortable and very worried for me. And he eventually would say, look, it sounds to me like you need to go back on the meds and stabilize. And and I imagine you're right. Like that came from a place of empathy. He he was thinking, look, there there is something I know I can do to make you better, which is to give you another prescription. And then we'll deal with this again later. And what I said to you earlier, right, the only reason I didn't take that offer is because I was 100% sure that if I went back on the pills, I would never come off of them. Um, and, And the only correction to everything that you said was it was it was not that I was strong willed. It was because I had this really incredible, incredible support system. And so, you know, the thing that keeps me awake at night, right, the thing that helps motivate my work is. I am absolutely convinced I would have taken the offer to go back on the medication if I hadn't had my partner every day supporting me, doing whatever she could to try to make my life less miserable. And then another thing we haven't talked about yet, I had a one and a half year old at the time. I had a little baby girl um, who every day I had to look at and think "I'm, I'm a useless father right now. Like she's going through toddlerhood and I'm sitting on the couch with my shattered leg up on pillows, high as a kite, while also withdrawing, right? You know, I'm, I'm still high from the doses that I'm on. And so I'm kind of cognitively useless and I'm incredibly ill, like from the withdrawal. That was, that was how I saw myself that entire time. And, and so, you know, whenever I thought about going back on the meds, I was like, well, if I do that, then I'm just on them forever and I'm no good to my kid. Um, And if I'm withdrawing forever, like if this never gets better, then I'm a terrible father figure, just sitting here ill all the time. And that's the kind of darkness that really led to the bottom of the pit for me, that led me to think like, I can't live like this, you know, if I don't get better, my kid would be better off without me, right? So I I had this incredible motivation like, the only options for me were get better or it kills me, right? Like, I didn't think being sick forever or being on the meds forever was a was a real option.
1: There's this very much, you know, forever story that you talk about that, that helplessness, hopelessness, <clears throat> and talks about it being never-ending. Did you go into a place at any point, and obviously appreciating that, you know, cognitively you weren't, you know, in, 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 in your best frame of mind, did you ever plan, have a, have a plan or have thoughts about how you might, might do it? Did, did, did your mind go in that space as well?
0: No. Um, so this is one of the only things that kind of like gave me some peace afterwards when I really, I was really scared that I ever really started entertaining the thought. Like the, the train of thought was, I'm so sick that these symptoms might kill me and and if they don't and I don't get better, I'll have to do it myself. Like that was the train of thought.
1: Ah, yes, yes.
0: And the only thing that kind of gave me some peace afterwards when I was really ashamed of that, like there's a lot of shame around the idea of, you know, suicidality and that, you know, I would abandon my kid. I would abandon right. And so the only thing that like gave me some peace afterwards was that I thought Oh, I wasn't that serious. You know, I ha- I didn't have a plan yet. Right. Like I, I didn't fully go, of course, all of that is, is the product of a lot of stigma, right? It's a pro- product of a lot of like mental health stigma about depression, about suicidal thoughts. Um, and so I've gotten more healthy about it in the time since, like as I've gained some distance from my recovery that I was very ill at the time. Um, and that there's nothing to be ashamed of. But for a while there, that was kind of the only thing that I held on to it was like, well, I didn't have a plan. I wasn't really like all the way there yet. Yeah.
1: Somehow having a plan, you know, says, says it, it, it's more risky or it's worse or something that, that uh, you know, <laughs> exactly, it wasn't that yeah. bad. It's like, mm, I don't know. I don't know. It's yeah. uh, obviously you're in the wars. You spoke about, uh, at one stage, uh, I, I think, and please, please correct me if I'm wrong, but lying on on the bathroom floor, um, you know, with, with with your head resting against the tiles, to try and you know soothe your fever, and another sort of you know moment later being absolutely you know uh, 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 feeling chills and and, and uh, trying to warm up, uh, was that one of the lows that that that. You found just your, your, yourself in that sounds like that was something you did by yourself that, that uh, no one was in the home at the time.
0: Yeah, that was that was definitely one of the lows. Um, so the way it worked, we lived in a three-story townhouse at the time, and the bedrooms were on the top floor the middle floor, the living area didn't have a bathroom, which was a terrible design for somebody who can't walk and go up and downstairs. And then the downstairs was a, a kind of walkout basement that also had a bathroom. And so Saadia would sleep up in our bedroom. But it, especially during the withdrawal process, um, I, I just slept so little that I just stayed on the couch on the main floor all night. And I would try to take cat naps at the beginning. And I'd watch TV most of the night, try to distract myself. Um, and so what happened that night, that was in week four, that was definitely the low point i i woke up thinking i was going to be sick and i was on the middle floor with no bathroom and so i kind of scooted over on a on a knee scooter that i had where you kind of rest your leg on a seat and and scooch along i scooted over to the stairs and i have a crutch there and i crutched down the stairs which is just incredibly dangerous like i would i would only ever go up or down the stairs with sadia there because i had no balance you know um but I thought I was going to be sick immediately. And I kind of crutch down the stairs as fast as I can. And I somehow make it and I have a walker down there and I walk her to the bathroom and, uh, and I, and I try to throw up, I try to be sick, but I haven't eaten anything in days. Right. And so nothing happens. And so I'm just like violently ill, but with no results and it just goes on and on and it's torturous. And, and when my body like pauses for a few minutes, yeah, I'd collapse on the floor of the bathroom. And if I tried to move again, if I tried to like get to the, there was a bed out in the, the, the basement area. If I tried to get out there, moving would make me nauseous again. And I, it would all, the whole thing would repeat. And so I spent the entire night without sleeping a minute on this bathroom floor, trying to be as still as possible so that I didn't get nauseated again. And yeah, I would be you know, sweating profusely, trying to cool my head on the tiles. And then I would be freezing, but I'm on a bathroom floor, I've got no blankets or anything. So I remember one point i reach up and, and grab a bath towel that's there and try to cover myself with a bath towel. Um, yeah, I, I still have nightmares about this night. It's the worst night of my life, hands down. And um, it was actually, when Sadia woke up the next morning and 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 she would have come down in an instant. You know, most of the nights she would check on me in the middle of the night, you know, she'd wake up if she heard anything, but she's on the upstairs and I'm in the basement. So we're two floors separated. And so I would have had to call her if I wanted to. And and I was trying to be so proud. I was trying to be like, you know, she needs to sleep. Like she's raising a kid, going to work, and dealing with a, a husband who's an absolute wreck. Like so I was trying not to, to, to bother her yet another millionth time in a row. And, uh, yeah, when, when she finally woke up in the morning and I told her all about, tell her all about this, uh, we get really scared. You know, I was really scared the whole night. She gets really scared hearing about it. Um, and we actually decided that I would go back on the medication that day that was in week four. And, um, And so she called the doctor and said, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to go back to the medication. We're scared. But can you at least prescribe us low doses so that, you know, he can take only as much as he has to, to make the symptoms go away. And then maybe it'll be easier next time. And so she picked up a new prescription that day, stayed home with me. And, um, and I was completely ready to go back on the pills that night, but I just happened to fall asleep. Like I finally got completely exhausted, went to bed for the first time in days and days and days. And I fell asleep before I took any of the pills and I got a real chunk of sleep. I got like six hours of sleep. And when I woke up from that, I like, I wasn't out of the woods. I wasn't better, but it was this break. You know how, like when you have the flu, you go to sleep at some point and you wake up and your, your fever's broken and you still feel crappy, but it's like, Oh, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. That's what it was like. You know, I woke up, And I felt so much better that I was like, Oh, I can finish this. I can finish detoxing. Right. But that's how close I was. I had the bottle of pills ready to go back on them. And I just happened to fall asleep that night.
1: Did you feel like that next morning you, you made it, if you will, that you got there? Man, I I thought
0: like, yeah, uh, you know, even though I still felt kind of bad by any reasonable standards, you know, I, I, yeah still sore and kind of chilled and a little bit nauseous right compared to where I was like my, my mental health had, had cleared up some I didn't feel like I was going to be sick constantly I wasn't constantly sweating the very first thing I said to Sadia when I woke up and she was watching me because like I had slept right so she just like sat there watching me just like praying that it was going to be over and the first thing I said when I woke up and she asked how I was I was like I want to eat want to eat something and and it was like the happiest i've ever been (laughs) so maybe second to like you know my kid being born and getting married but it it was up there (laughs) yeah Yeah.
1: it's incredible how all those normal functions start to return a bit of sleep you know your appetite returns you know it's almost like you've kind of uh broken the back of it that that's that, uh yeah. you know you're, you're 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 at least on the uh upward trend at that point
0: that's exactly how i felt yeah it's not that i felt great it's that i'd, I'd broken it and and i was coming out and that was enough like knowing that I was coming out, like knowing I wasn't going to die. <laughs> like that was hope yeah, return,
1: hope return,
0: hope return. How
1: returned, much yeah. longer did, did, did it take? You know, so that's the end of week four, you know, is, yeah. is there another four weeks? Is it, is, is it within a week after? What, what was your experience?
0: It's a really good question. So the really acute symptoms faded pretty quickly after that. So that was at about day 29 or 30 uh, it was it was interesting. Saudi and I went back to the calendar many many months later and tried to like put, cobble my notes together because I was trying to write about the experience. And we I think it was day twenty nine or day thirty. So I hadn't had any medication in my system for about eight days that day when I finally slept. And so it looked like the the withdrawal symptoms peak acuity was, was happening over the course of about a week, right? And so the last week we dropped the last dose and it had started fading pretty dramatically by day, by day eight. Um, that week, uh, things got better really quickly. I felt, I, I ate, I slept every night. Um, so I definitely felt more human more quickly. What's really interesting is I've since learned about something called PAWS, which is post-acute withdrawal syndrome. And it tends to be much more serious in cases of people who have been on opioids for years. You know, We have people in the US who have been on long-term opioid therapy for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years at this point. And so PAWS is a really serious worry for those people because their brain is so accustomed to the presence of, of prescription opioids. Um, so I didn't have anything like that amount of time. I'd been on it for something like a couple of months. But the, the thing that's really interesting is I would get flare-ups of the symptoms out of nowhere. And that lasted for like six months. Wow. Um, and, it, and it wasn't acute, it wasn't real severe. It tended not to really disrupt my life a ton. But it was scary, because I was traumatized by this event, right? Like it had been so terrible. And so terrifying. And so I would lay down every once in a while, and my legs would start to shake. I would get the like tremors. And it was this very, this very particular feeling like the feeling of being in withdrawal when you get the kind of shakes, the jitters that go along with that. It's a very, very particular feeling. And it would kick in just randomly for months afterwards. And every time it would send my heart into my throat, you know, I'd have this panic that it was coming back, and it never did. It would come and it would pass, and I'd be okay. But it was, it was, it was scary. Yeah.
1: Extremely powerful sort of experiences to 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 try and get through, and a six month process, you know, thereafter, um, you know, where this. I might even describe it as like almost like a spontaneous recovery of those of of those symptoms that that are extremely frightening and once again compelling to to get away from you know the, the 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 fright of if this is comes back I might have to do something about this it, it, it's, it, it's scary yeah
0: yeah and and I've spoken to a lot of patients now you know now I've been publishing on this material for for several years and so after the TED talk and after my book came out you know I get emails from people who have been on opioid therapy or people who have been addicted to heroin or illicit fentanyl. And what's very interesting is you learn pretty quickly that there's a bit of a bell curve in nature when it comes to kind of sensitivity to these drugs. And so I've had a few people reach out and say, you know, I don't understand what your problem is. I was on eight bags of heroin a day. Withdrawal was no big deal for me. I'd, I'd get sick for a few days, you know, whatever. I, I can survive the flu. And then I've had other people reach out and say, I literally only was on medication for 10 days and I got so sick afterwards that I, I was scared it was going to kill me. And then the patients who are really kind of, um, well, well, they kind of speak to the moment that we're at in the US in particular are these patients who have been on opioids for years and years and years um, because they were aggressively prescribed opioids for chronic pain starting in the 1990s. And what some of them tell me is that when their doctors, you know, decide to try to taper them, because now we're getting less comfortable with opioids, or their doctor retires, and so they have to find a new doctor who's really scared of these doses they're on, and so their new doctor tries to taper them or cuts them off, their withdrawal symptoms, you know, some of them have said, like, I've been in acute withdrawal for four months, I've been in acute withdrawal for eight months, like, like their stories, because of this incredible dependence, are really... Are really scary. You know, those are the folks who I really worry about right now because the healthcare system has put them in this position where they have a profound dependence on the medication and now we're getting less comfortable with it. And so we're saying to them, oh, maybe it's time for you to get off. And they're really, really scared of this withdrawal, which I now completely understand how you could be scared of this withdrawal process, right? So, you know, I think for a lot of people, it won't be as bad as it was for me. Um, and for a lot of people, if it's just done well, so if the taper, if your doctor has a tapering plan that's sane, where you taper, you know, five to ten percent every week, two weeks or four weeks, it'll take a long time, but it won't be that bad. But then some people are even more sensitive than I was, or they've been on it for so long that it's just really hard. Um, and that variability, I think, is crucial for everyone to understand because doctors have to understand there's no algorithm here. Every patient's different, and so tapering is just a hard skill to learn.
1: What is the big message that, that you're hoping to convey to the world? You know, having been through this, you know, what what is it that you hope um, comes from? You know, your experience, your talks, your book. Uh, what 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 do you hope um, changes? You know, in the world of, of opioid use,
0: that's a really hard question. I, I guess, um, something like the following so people take drugs for reasons, and I took drugs that happened to be prescribed to me by my doctor because I had my foot blown apart, right? But a lot of people all over the world take all sorts of drugs for similar sorts of reasons, and so. It turns out that in my life, where I live, doing what I did, the first time I had real cause to take an opioid was a prescription that came from my doctor. But I've now talked to people in different circumstances for whom heroin fills this purpose. Right? Heroin is an opioid just like oxycodone, just like hydrocodone, just like morphine. It does the same basic thing to the brain. And... There are communities in the world where it's easier and cheaper to get heroin than it is to have access to a doctor and to get prescription opioids. And what I learned about the effectiveness of oxycodone for my pain translates to other people with, who take morphine or heroin or illicit fentanyl to treat their pain or their psychological pain or their emotional pain. So, so there's the first thing that I learned. People take drugs for reasons. And I think that when you understand that, it helps you see people who use drugs with compassion, right? Because it's very easy to understand the allure of a drug when you understand how powerful it is, first, personally. And then the other end of that, once you start taking drugs for whatever reason, it's incredibly hard to get off them it's physically hard, it's emotionally hard, it's psychologically hard. And I had all of the benefits that society hands out. I had a supportive family. I have a stable job that didn't abandon me. I'm a professor at a great university. I had access to all of these resources. I had all of these advantages. And it was still that hard for me. And so part of what I want to think about is before we judge people who find it hard to get off drugs of any kind, prescription or illicit, um, perhaps we got to think about how hard it would be if you lacked any of those advantages, right? So, so something like that, bringing it all together, you know, people take drugs for reasons, and when you take drugs, it's really hard to get off of them. And I hope that that message builds compassion and helps us see drug use, when it's risky, when it leads to addiction, when it leads people to overdose, and when it eventually starts killing people at a rate that it is in North America right now, um, that our response isn't to be judgmental, isn't to be stigmatizing. Our response is to be uh, scared for our neighbors and our friends and our loved ones who are going through this um, because they need help.
1: That's an incredibly beautiful message. I think uh, uh, that message is a much deeper one than than your own story. It's one of trying to understand and and be compassionate in the way that we understand human beings' compelling reason for starting to use drugs because there's very good reason to start. And there's just as... uh, just as a good, good a reason to continue, because continuing is, is is a very compelling nature to to try and avoid the hell that you went through. And if we can be compassionate in both ends, rather than you know, judgmental, we can be in a better world. And 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 particularly, you know, understanding your experience, where as you say, you had a very fortunate path through. And it was still hell. I, uh, I recently spoke with a gentleman, um, Danny Shannon, who, who um, was addicted to, to heroin for many, many years, I think 13 plus plus years, and he, he talks about um, you know his his uh, journey and some of the stories that came out of that, the desperation of, of getting out of withdrawal. You know, he because I was hanging, you know, um, mm. it's like the street, street terms and, and, and the like. And he talks about being, getting his hands on on, on heroin and uh, it was to get that pain away and being so frantic and the mind kind of racing and clearly, you know, sleep has not been there and all sorts of things. Uh, willing to, to take unclean needles because of the five minutes to go up the road – is unbearable. It's just too much. And so, uh, uh, you know, that that's that desperation and hence why it's so difficult to, to get off the, the um, you know, this, this dependency because it's of that genuine nature. So I'm, I'm, I'm hearing some similar things in your, your, your story and I think, um, you know, that, that, that space of compassion is, is, is a beautiful message and uh, I think you've summed it up beautifully.
0: Thank you for that. Mate. I really appreciate it, yeah.
1: Travis. Tell me a little bit about uh, how people can get in contact with you. Tell me a little bit about your book where people can find it because I think this is a message that uh, you know I'd love for all our, all our listeners and viewers to 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 hear more about because I'm sure you know if it doesn't affect their life, it'll certainly affect a loved one's life, and and we all need to be, I think, more compassionate and prepared, you know, to 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 face this ourselves because. You know, I think your story is, you know, unfortunately not an uncommon one.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, so I'm I'm easy to find and get a hold of. My website is www.travisreader.com. And um, I think that it's probably a little bit harder to get my book in Australia because uh, I don't think HarperCollins Australia has released it yet. Um, It can certainly be ordered from the US on Amazon or on anyone's favorite websites, but I also post links to any of the media essays that I write. So I've written for lots of different outlets and, and I have a lot more coming out over the coming months. And so on my website, I kind of keep a running tab of, of the essays that I can, that I've written that can be accessed you know, no matter where you're from. And so uh, I, I would love it if uh, if the book gets released in Australia eventually so that it's easy to get there, but it can you know, be ordered from overseas. And then in the meantime, um, also yeah anything that's on online my first piece that was published out of the book that was an adapted essay was published in the Wall Street Journal and so that's accessible online um and then I've had uh, several other essays in the time since then I had an excerpt on ted.com thanks to my ted talk they they invited an excerpt there um and all of that's available on the website Yes. so anyone um, Anyone can poke around, read about me there. You can contact me. I don't hide my email address, so um, yeah, I'm easy to access from the websites. Um, I'm on Twitter, all the all that good stuff.
1: Fantastic. And your book is called In Pain.
0: Yes, the book is called In Pain: A Bioethicist's Personal Struggle with Opioids.
1: Fantastic, fantastic! I I would uh, encourage everyone to to grab grab a copy. I'm sure that Amazon here in Australia, or you know, other listeners from around the world, they'll be able to find it. So, Travis, it's been an absolute pleasure having having you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about your personal journey. I know it's not it's not easy, um, but I also want to thank you for for sharing your. Your uh, story and your message, uh, it, I think, it's re- really one of hope um, ra- rather than one of, of, of you know pain and hell. Um, because I think we 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 can really change uh, the way that we work with opioids and, and those people in that space uh, to do it better um, and 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 get a beneficial outcome. You know, when in, in in those times of need. So much appreciated for your time, Travis.
0: Well, I appreciate it. So thanks for having me on. Great conversation.
1: Thanks.